Blog Talk Radio. Okay, we are going to be live in... Yeah, that's kind of important. Okay, we're going live in 5, 4, 3, 2, and 1. You're about to hear a revolution in talk radio, Liberty Talk Radio, where the critical thinking will defrag your mind of propaganda-ridden viruses induced by mass media news programming. No BS here, just the facts. And now we present to you America's quintessential iconoclastic anomaly. Wow. In talk radio, your host, Joe Cristiano. Welcome, everyone, to Liberty Talk Radio, America's libertarian voice, broadcasting from our studio in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to around the world. I'm your host, Joe Cristiano, and this is your antidote to popular talk radio. Folks, it's time for us to take back control of our government. Now, before this bureaucratic, oversized, and self-serving federal government starves us of our property, our freedom, our rights, and our liberty. But to do this, we must shed conventional thinking regarding our political structure. We need to be revolutionaries in thought, dissidents in action. Only after we recognize what our government is doing to our freedom and our Constitution will we start taking it back. And this program is just about that. Today, we're pleased and honored to have as our guest Dr. Peter Conti brown He's an assistant professor at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. A financial historian and legal scholar, Conti Brown studies central banking, financial regulation, and public finance. Sounds fascinating, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, I guess you have to be really smart to do that. You know, that's why I'm not in that field. You know, he has a particular focus um, on the history and policies of the U.S. Federal Reserve. He is author of, um, uh, author of the book. Uh, the Power and the Independence of the Federal Reserve, the editor of two other books, and author and co-author of a dozen articles on central banking, financial regulation, and bank corporate governors. Peter, welcome to Liberty Talk Radio. Thanks for having me. You know, Peter, I want to open up with a quote from Henry Ford. And back, I guess, it was 19, possibly 1920s or 1930s, I'm not sure, he said, it is well enough that people of the nation do not understand our banking and monetary system, for if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. And I think that still holds true today. Oh, I'm not sure about that. And Henry Ford was, uh, was almost uh, infamous for how little he understood about things outside of his own expertise. So we've <laughs> got to take him with a grain of salt, I think. Yeah, but, but is the comment valid? I, I don't think so. I think that uh, the, the structure of our of our banking system is global in nature. It's in it's irretrievably global in nature. There's complexity, no doubt, but there's complexity that abounds in virtually every area of industry uh, and and by relation uh, its regulation, its and and the political relationships between industry uh, and government. I think that we would do ourselves a great disservice if we assume that uh, everything that is complex is uh, nefarious. And I think that's something that happens a lot with the Federal Reserve and with our banking systems, mm-hmm. that if anything is complex about it or if there's 
there's any any uh, anything that isn't immediately understandable to anyone on the street that it's therefore something that should cause a revolution. So I think Henry Ford was wrong when he said it. I think that's not true today. Why is the Federal Reserve such a secret society type thing, and why is it why is it so difficult to understand? And why do we need the Federal Reserve? Why don't we just have print money based on some sort of criteria, whether it's the amount of gold that's in Fort Knox or wherever, and um, do what we did before the Federal Reserve? I mean, I've seen um, uh, congressional inquiries on the Federal Reserve. They ask simple questions, and even the governors of the Federal Reserve have difficulty answering it and seem to mumble their words because I don't, it sounds like they don't even know what they're talking about. There's, I know there's dozens of people working within the Federal Reserve in different departments, and why such a complex system and why such a secretive system that's international in scope, that's not part of the federal government, and in fact is not federal, it has no reserves, and it's not a bank, and we call it the Federal Reserve Bank. That's like calling me... Um, by another name that doesn't exist. So it is a part of the federal government. Uh, that's, that's incorrect. The Federal Reserve System is structured as a governmental agency. That's the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. That's appointed by the, the staff by, by uh, those who are appointed by the President, confirmed by the Senate. Uh, it's subject to all uh, to you know the Freedom of Information Act. Um, there are idiosyncrasies about the Fed's Board of Governors. But that's, it's simply uh, factually incorrect to say it's not part of the federal government. The Federal Reserve banks are, are different. They are, they are uh, government instrumentalities that are, have a private charter. When they were created in 1913, there was nothing quite like them, but there were a lot of national banks. Think uh, uh, banks like uh, the Chase Manhattan Bank, for example, uh, or others that were, had a national charter. Uh, and over time, the Federal Reserve banks, while they've maintained their their private status, uh, their authority within the Federal Reserve System has become more diminished. After 1935, they were subject to uh, uh, the supervision and subordination by the government agency. So this is a myth that's that's uh, was once arguably true. Before 1935, the 12 Federal Reserve banks were essentially autonomous and kind of pursued their own policy. Uh, the private private entities, but had uh, special privileges as, uh, through through the statute. But after 1935, that's just not been true at all. As far as its secrecy, I would think that the Federal Reserve actually is one of the most transparent agencies of government. Uh, how often do you see the SEC uh, with uh, you know making uh, uh, releasing the transcripts of their meetings? And the Federal Reserve does that. It releases the minutes of its meetings even faster. These are on a lab. Today, you can go to the Fed's website, and you can look at its balance sheet down to the individual asset. So there's a quite a lot of, of openness. So I would also disagree that it's, uh, it's highly secretive. I would agree with you, though, that what the Fed does and how it's structured makes it sometimes hard to digest on the outside. People understand the Supreme Court, right? president puts justices on the Supreme Court after a Senate confirmation. They serve essentially for life. Uh, and that's all there is to it. Whether they're political or they're legal, we can have debates about that. But the Supreme Court, that's something we get our heads around. The Fed is different, and it is that presence of the Federal Reserve Banks uh, 
that makes it so so difficult to comprehend because we have nothing else like it in government. The system part of the Federal Reserve system is uh, is about the cooperation between that government agency and those quasi-private entities, the 12 Federal Reserve banks. You're in the Dallas Fed District. You all are in Oklahoma, is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah, so you're in the Dallas Fed District. I'm in the Philadelphia Fed District. These are quasi-private banks, and those that uh, uh, that that makes it harder to understand. Um, but my experience, especially since Bernanke and Yellen, uh, Alan Greenspan was a little bit harder. But they uh, they strive to speak plainly about what are complicated topics, not always successfully, given uh, given the technical nature of the discussion. But this idea of moving the Fed toward a more transparent footing. Uh, toward uh, on a basis easier to understand has been the mission of at least the last two Fed chairs and arguably uh, the last four. And so I think that the Fed suffers in some sense, number one, by how goofy its governance system is with those Federal Reserve banks. I'll agree with you there. And number two, that it's built on a, a long-standing uh, tradition of confusion, conspiracy theory uh, that has been building up over a century, even after those the the changes have been made by statute uh, to eliminate some of the things that people have complained about the the mythos around the fed has made, has sustained itself well why when they ask they they want to audit the fed fed i know um, <clears throat> dr ron paul was spearheading that and the fed says no we don't want to jeopardize our independence you know mm-hmm. why why would we not be i mean it's our money you know it's it's us that we're asking to, to audit. And mm-hmm. why does, why does a, 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 another entity say, I'm sorry, we're not going to allow you to audit what is rightfully yours as an American citizen? Yeah, well, let's be clear. That, the audit the Fed bill uh, sponsored by, by Ron Paul and then afterward Rand Paul isn't a financial audit. The Fed is already audited. So it's not a, don't, don't think of it in terms of an accounting. That already happens. It's a political audit. And what that means is uh, we want the, the Congress to be in the place of requiring the Fed to justify in real political time any decision that it makes. And there are good arguments in favor of that kind of approach. But wh- why it's not? I mean, why not? It's our money. I mean, uh, we, we, we elect the representatives. We don't elect people to the Federal Reserve. And if the representatives of the people want to know, want an accounting for the the assets that are backing up the dollar indirectly, and I know it's not directly, you know, uh, why don't they just do it? To me, it'd be simple. Say, there's a door, you know, of course, you can't touch anything, you can't take samples home, but at least they can say, yes, you said you had, uh, you know, uh, whatever the amount is, you know, uh, 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 8,000 tons of gold, and that's what's there, 8,000 tons. We're happy campers. Yeah, well, just, just to be clear, though, that is already happening. So that's, that's not the debate. Having a, a, a financial audit of the Fed happens every single year. They, they hire uh, the leading accounting firms. They rotate this. I think PricewaterhouseCooper uh, or PwC, or maybe it's Deloitte this year, uh, provided it the last time. Uh, as I said, you can go right now to the Fed's website, and there's no, there's no reason to doubt what they're reporting on the website, uh, at all, and see what the Fed has on its balance sheet. It issues some of the most thorough annual reports, and as an academic, I study how those balance sheets and annual reports 
change over, over time, and they've done that since its very first year. So that's not the debate. You are completely correct in what you're saying. We, we as, as the people, deserve to know how the Fed is using its money, and we get that information. But what, what, then the why do they have to audit the Fed when it's already been audited? I don't understand that. I mean, are okay. they just taking, is the audit taking the word of the Federal Reserve governor saying, uh, yes, I, we have 8,000 8, tons of gold in the vault, Yes, it is. They sign it, but well, no, no one, no one ordered no anybody it. except the accountants who have to sign saying that we've com- conducted this audit. It's it's I, the Fed is to- is completely already audited. That, that's the, the name audit the Fed is a misnomer. It's about a political accounting, not a financial accounting. So the scenario you described, it's already happening. Uh, I, I was an auditor for a, an international international um, oil conglomerate. And when we did an audit, we did an audit. We went in there, we counted everything. And yeah. it's amazing what you find when you start counting things. And you did things on a very elementary level. I mean, what we did was so elementary, I mean, a, a high school kid with no, with no experience could have done the same thing that we did. But what we found as a result of that, we found the inner workings of what was going on. I mean, that's where we found that all the meat. And all I'm, where I'm confused is that if we have, in fact, an account, an accounting mm-hmm. of, yeah. of, the, of the gold in the vault, and I'm not picking on gold, I'm just using that as an example. Yeah, sure, you know, sure. You know, and we have that, I mean, Ron Paul and Rand Paul can't be that stupid by saying, well, we know we had an audit, it was all counted, it was accounted for, we have all the documents here, we want to audit the Fed. They wouldn't say that. No, 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 no. Have you, have you read the audit of the Fed bill? No, I have not. That, no, it's exactly what's happening. Uh, and they're not doing it because they're stupid. They're not even doing it because they're, they're evil or, they, or anything. They have a view that the Fed shouldn't have uh, the political autonomy to navigate those de- the decisions on its policymaking. That's their view. It has nothing, just nothing to do with financial accounting. And I would invite you to, to do, read two things. It would be very easy to do. Okay. Read the audit the Fed bill. Yep. And then read the Fed's uh, annual report. And you will see that the thing that you're describing, and I would agree with you, if the Fed were sitting on this fiat currency, uh, managing a balance sheet of $4.5 trillion, and doing it in utter secrecy with no accounting, that would be a national, international scandal that would shake the rafters. Uh, but nothing like that is happening. And what the, what the doctors, Paul, have been motivated by isn't a financial accounting about, about uh, counting things. It's about a political audit to make sure that what the Fed is about matches their political sensibilities. Now, that, that's a good debate to have. I'm, I hope that you're not hearing me uh, say that, they're, they're, that the, those who support audit the Fed are corrupt or stupid themselves. It's just about a different thing. And in, it's a classic case of political ed- rhetoric, audit. The word audit, the Fed there, is used in part to sell this policy because for many people who uh, uh, would be uh, not very sympathetic with the idea of getting uh, members of Congress and their, with their part political, partisan political interests in shaping the value of our currency might be more persuaded if they think it's about a financial audit. But it's well, just, yeah, what it I just find interesting is that. that Dr. Ron Paul – had very few friends in Congress. I mean, let's face it, he was, he was, yeah. a, you know, he was the odd man out. And um, he's been screwed.
screaming for order the Fed. But yet on mainstream television, which would love to sh- show the world that Ron Paul is a nutcake, okay, why would they not? Why wouldn't even mainstream television say, hey, we've had an order of the Fed. You know, if you want to see who ordered it, what they found, it, you know, they counted each bar or however they do it or every other bar, you know, however they, whatever the criteria is for a valid audit. Why didn't anyone ever present that or even mention it in these discussion and debates regarding ordering the Fed? You never every, hear that. Every single congressional hearing around audit the Fed in the last seven or eight years has had exactly the conversation you and I have just, have just had. But it hasn't been very public unless you it's, sit it's in. Been on the, it's been on the op-ed pages of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. It's been in the open, televised congressional hearings. be happy to send you links to this. Okay, this is well, no that, secret. That, that's the it's, second it's time I've been in my life because I've never seen that. You know, I've not, I didn't know that information was available. Because no, I would be happy to send it to you. This okay, is, no, no you don't have to do that. I, I can find it. No problem. I appreciate that. Now, I guess that book, The uh, Preacher from Jekyll, Jekyll Island, is a fantasy then. Uh, the Creature from Jekyll Island is, uh, is not good history. I don't know a single historian, uh, and this isn't a politics or partisan politics issue, uh, who would regard that as a, as a well-researched volume. It's, uh, it just trucks in innuendo and conspiracy theory and... Uh, overreaches. and I mean, look, you're talking to somebody who's written a book that is critical of the Federal Reserve System. Uh, so I'm, I'm no, I'm no, uh, I'm no, you know, defender of the Fed. Um, but the creature from Jekyll Island is, uh, is it's not a serious uh, book of scholarship. It's, oh. uh, it's, it has sold remarkably well. But as we know, it doesn't. You don't have to be serious to to sell. Volumes and indeed, the, no, I, the more I, I rigorous agree. something yeah. is, the, maybe the harder it is to sell. Right. Well, in there, uh, um, they mention that the Federal Reserve was voted um, on the, I believe, and I, I could be wrong, it's been a long time ago since I read that book, that they um, voted on on the eve of Christmas Eve, like middle of the night or something like that, to make sure only certain people were there that they knew. We're going to be pro, you know, uh, Federal Reserve, and and so it was. It was. Yeah, that's, this is part of the the conspiracy theory. Yeah, right. it, it did pass on December twenty third, nineteen thirteen. That fact is true, but it, that that what passed there was the conference report. It had already long since passed in September. The House uh, it had passed the Senate. And now they needed to pass the conference report reconciling those two oh, bills. Okay. It was a very partisan okay. bill, uh, no question about it. Most Republicans opposed uh, the Federal Reserve Act, even though uh, much of the, the structure of the Federal Reserve System, the so-called creature from Jekyll Island, uh, was a Republican bill. It's called the Aldrich Bill. Um, but there was nothing about trying to get it, sneak it by people who weren't paying attention. It was one of the dominant uh, news uh, it was on the front pages of, of major newspapers for about nine months before its passage. I see. So it, it, it was, in fact, passed by the Republican and Democrat Congress and Senate before it, December right. 30, 23rd. Most on, on, it was a partisan bill in the sense that the 1912 election uh, had uh, added strength to the Democratic majorities in both of those, uh, of those houses and then added a, uh, the president. Woodrow Wilson was a Democrat uh, succeeding 
William Howard Taft, the Republican. So it was a Democratic bill. I don't want to, to make you think that it was a bipartisan bill. It wasn't. Um, but it was the Democratic bill was built on the Republican proposal that had preceded it by a couple of years. I see. All right. Well, I want you to know that I'm a monetary atheist. I, I don't believe any of these PPI currencies are worth squat. They seem to work for a while. They all, they all resume to their um, initial value of zero, so it looks like we're going the same way. Now, one of the uh, charges of the, um, um, uh, uh, of the Federal Reserve was to maintain a monetary supply or monetary value you know, of our currency um, relatively consistent. I mean, to keep, you know, control inflation and all other stuff. Well, actually, actually, not at all. It was to maintain an elastic currency, so to be very different from what you just described. Okay. So, the, so we the charge yeah. there was to make sure that the seasonal demands for currency in 1912, this is marked by, uh, by true seasons, agricultural seasons, to make sure that currency wasn't artificially scarce at the time when farmers were going to be borrowing uh, uh, in order to finance their new crop, uh, and then uh, uh, so that. It, the problem wouldn't be the classic banker's dilemma, where a banker offers you an umbrella when the sun is shining and the first cloud uh, reaches in to, to yank it away. No. Um, so the Federal Reserve System was built in part because uh, the United States was an international financial pariah at that point. We didn't have a mechanism for making the goods that we produced and the okay. commerce in which we participated uh, be international, despite having one of the largest economies uh, in the world. And so, uh, and we were mocked for our failures to have uh, a more robust financial system, uh, atomized as it was across states, uh, without anything that was unifying uh, that system. So that was the motivation for uh, the original Federal Reserve Act. Now it came at a time when uh, the currency, even as it was proposed through the Federal Reserve System, was not a fiat currency. It was backed by gold. The Fed, the experiment with the Federal Reserve System is so fascinating because uh, after the passage of the Act, as you noted, on December 23, 1913, it took about another year before the Federal Reserve Banks opened their doors for business. And in August of 1914, as this was still happening, uh, opening up these Federal Reserve Banks, of course, was the beginning of World War I, and with it the end of the classical gold standard, uh, because the classical gold standard couldn't function in a vacuum. It, had, it depended on international commitments and coordination, which was no, was no longer the case during the war. Uh, and so the Fed became uh, 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 a system eventually with starts and stops along the way with various kinds of experiments with a commodity-based currency until 1971 and then finally 1973 when it became a, uh, the, the regulator of a truly uh, fiat currency. Yeah. Now, I'm intrigued by your assertion that you think that we're headed in the same way, that the value of the dollar will be, will be nothing. The Fed has been struggling with the opposite problem of inflation that has been uh, much lower than its, uh, than its intent. And the Fed's decision today to raise interest rates by another 25 basis points was met by criticism that uh, there's no reason to raise interest rates when inflation is so low. Um, so it seems, it seems to me that uh, the evidence is pointing in the other direction. Do you, do you disagree with that? No. Well, uh, look at long term what the value of the dollar was, you know, uh, I guess, relative to 
certain any commodity, whether it be copper, bread, whatever. Uh, and today, it is hundreds fold more expensive today than it was back in 1913. So uh, I assume that the Federal Reserve is not responsible at all for the inflationary uh, aspect of our currency. Um, well, no, no. The Fed, the Fed has had a great deal uh, of a role to play uh, in in inflation. There have been some spectacular failures along the way, um, but in both directions, in terms of inflation and deflation. Now, inflation is a uh, a huge problem for for savers, right? It, uh, it erodes the value of your surplus. You work hard and you earn more than you consume, and you want to put something away for the future. Uh, and if you're putting it away in a, in a unit of account uh, that is, doesn't function well as a store of value, uh, then that's a pretty shaky system. But for, but, but for those who have debts, so think you know, farmers or, or homeowners or others, inflation can be a really great thing so long as wages uh, rise <coughs> to match it. Uh, and so that, because that's the elimination of your mortgage. Deflation, on the other hand, uh, is a, uh, a, a sends an economy into an abyss, and that was that's exactly what happened. The Fed made colossal errors during the Great Depression by deflating the currency, and libertarians and and many others have squarely criticized the Fed for that problem, not for stoking inflation, but for not stoking inflation enough. Uh, and this was the concern uh, following the 2008 crisis again, is that. The fear was that we were heading into a Japan-like scenario where uh, we would see prices falling, uh, interest rates at zero or below, uh, and prospects for growth significantly hampered by errors at the central bank's level, at the level of the central bank. Now, there were many at the time that Ben Bernanke uh, and others at the Federal Reserve were, were pushing interest rates to zero and engaging in quantitative easing. He said, you are going to unleash a tsunami of inflation. Um, but eight years later, we haven't seen that at all. Again, as I said, we've seen the opposite problem. So if that's your worldview, if you're a monetary atheist and you, you think that fiat currency is, is just sprinting toward inflation uh, uh, irrevocably, I'd ask, why not be a monetary agnostic at the very least, in the sense that you need evidence in order to support that view, uh, not just ideology. And my question would be, where's the evidence for this? Yeah, no, uh, I, I, I see what you're saying. My, my problem is that the – oh, boy, this gets complicated because we're, now we're going to get into somebody – too many avenues to go down. We'll be here for three hours. Hold on. You have a question? Oh, someone's look, someone yeah, at the I studio is like looking five. at me like I have a question. I have like five. Right, we have five questions here. <laughs> okay. I, I'll admit I am, like, incredibly ignorant on all of this, but I'm absolutely astounded about the idea that somehow – even though we printed off so much money, we would be having a problem with deflation instead of inflation. I, I'm very ignorant on economics, but could you explain how that works exactly, even though we're printing sure. more money? So, so again, the, problem, the, the question of inflation is across an entire economy, right? It's all about, it's all about the quantities of these things. So you can be printing money, uh, but not printing it fast enough if the entire economy is falling into a hole. Sometimes you call these holes liquidity traps, and that is that people are so scared of uh, the financial, of financial crisis-like situations and have so little trust in the financial system that even as interest rates go to zero, they still aren't spending their money out of that fear. They're hoarding it. 
And if you're in that kind of a, a scenario, whether you're you're sitting on in a safe with you've converted all of your currency to gold bars or you're stuffing bills under a mattress, uh, the idea is well, we've got to get people out there trusting the system, spending their money, and banks lending to people who have good ideas for valuable businesses but aren't able to get that money that they don't be able to get in normal times. Now, if that situation's not happening and you're just printing money under normal circumstances and you're providing a quantity of money that far outstrips the general economic demand, then that's almost the textbook definition of inflation. But that's not where we were and have been since 2009. The Fed has been printing money, so to speak, right, trying to increase the amount of money in circulation. But the real question is not, is the Fed printing money? The question is, is the Fed printing money that far outstrips demand for that money? So you look at that relationship, not the fact of the Fed printing money. And the, the, the question I'd ask is, as a non-libertarian, one, one reason I was, I was delighted and looking forward to, to chatting with you all today, as I do with many, many libertarian groups uh, and, and many others, is if we went to a system that was uh, with private money, so this is just, these are notes backed by whatever the private banks want them to be backed by, and they're set to market pressures uh, like any other kind of, of commodity. Um, what about our political system makes you feel confident that those private banks wouldn't try to manipulate politics for their good? Uh, that's, that's the place where I, I find so implausible uh, the libertarian vision of private money creation. Um, because everything, as a historian, I can say that banks have never been passive about the political process. And if you take the functions of the Federal Reserve System and hand it over to private banks, it seems to me you'd be handing over an extraordinarily potent tool for banks to use to manipulate uh, the process to their own end. But the money in amount of money in circulation continues to increase. That's true. The economy is not changing, and there's many reasons for oh, that. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Stop right there. The, the economy is not changing? The, the, the economy is not expanding. Oh, that's not true at all. That's not, not even close to being true. The economy has been expanding except for about uh, uh, an 18-month period uh, starting in late 2007 and ending in 2009. It's been expanding uh, every year since, no, or every it, month. What part of the economy is expanding? Because it, it seems that uh, most people are broke today. I mean, people just don't have money. People are highly indebted. Um, auto sales this year, I think it could be a catastrophe. Um, if you take the, the average person today, um, they either, if they're young, they have hellacious student loans, of which they'll never be able to pay off. They have people have purchased cars that they couldn't afford, which, you know, no, no payments for six months, 0% financing, you know, no money down, obviously. And these cars are coming back, so the auto... I'm just saying that we, we see this, this system of easy money unraveling because the number of people out of the workforce right now are rivaling the amount of people out of the workforce percentage-wise that we had during the Great Depression. This is not so a good economy. Uh, that's not even close to being true, uh, what you just said right there. Uh, unemployment right now is at 4.6%, right? Oh, and you can, you that, can that's got to be the biggest lie in the world. Under, under, underemployment and the like. But, but this is the danger indeed of trying to make or, or even to, to comprehend uh, economic policy 
based on kind of the, the people you know around you. Uh, and that's because the, the economy is just unbelievably vast. Let me give an example that sort of illustrates this. I was in Dubai last week uh, on a business trip. Uh, have you ever been to Dubai? No, I have not been to Dubai. I would recommend it if you ever get a chance. It's an extraordinary place. It's this, uh, it's this mega city right. uh, that comes in the desert. Dubai has no oil money or, or almost no oil money. And as you look, there are just hundreds of skyscrapers, literally hundreds. I'm looking around and I'm thinking, how on earth are they filling this? Like, I don't see it. I don't see where all of this economic activity goes. And that's part of the problem, right, is the limit of my little brain to to just observe all of this economic activity. Uh, Because anecdotally, I won't be able to do it. I won't be able in my lifetime be able to comprehend the vastness of even the economy of Dubai, let alone the economy of the United States, which is probably too orders of magnitude larger. And so right now, the economy is expanding. And so to your question of if if the monetary base is expanding, but the economy is shrinking, then I would agree with you, that really has a a question uh, of building inflationary pressures that we should be very concerned about. But that's not the fact. Uh, That's not not the reality. Where is is the economy expanding? In what sectors? Across, so this is, these are aggregate statistics about how many jobs are being added each month, 100 to, uh, to 200,000 right. jobs a month, right. uh, and then the, the across the economy uh, growth. Now that does not, what, that, that is, what this is, is just running into just sort of blunt categorical statistics to say, you know, the economy is growing at about, uh, you know, 1.8% or 2% per year. But that doesn't mean that there won't be sectoral upheavals, and in fact, very, very great ones uh, that can occur. Um, but, uh, but on the aggregate, that's the question, is how is the economy doing? Because the money expansion is also an aggregate figure. It's not like the Fed is injecting huge amounts of money into the automobile sector, sector uh, which is collapsing, which I don't even think is true either. That would be a cause for grave concern. But money creation is happening at the aggregate. So the apples-to-apples comparison here is if the money expansion is happening on the aggregate, then we want to see what's happening economically on the aggregate. And that's the question that you sort of uh, put in conversation with each other. Did we solve the problems of 2008? Oh, Joe, that is such a profound question. Why do you think we invited you to answer profound <laughs> questions? Easy ones I could have asked my wife, you know, she could, she could have told me, shut up and throw out the garbage, you know, but she could tell me that. Uh, uh, I, I think that we have not. Uh, I think that we've started to. Um, here's, here's the place where I'm, I'm concerned about the problem of 2008. So in 2008, what we have is this over-levered financial system where the leverage, the people lending money in, in, in various directions, is utterly opaque. And we don't even know. So to forget going to the bank and getting a mortgage, and even a mortgage for people who can't afford to pay it back, that was a real problem in 2008. Uh, it's, uh, it, it was mostly solved afterward. There's some evidence that we're kind of roaring back into the... Uh, into a subprime mortgage space. But that's not even the most interesting and most complicated problem of 2008. The more complicated problem is when I'm writing my check, 
pretend for a moment I'm actually writing a paper check, which I don't do for my mortgage. It's all automatic at this point. But when I'm writing a check that says, I, Peter Conti Brown, I'm going to pay this amount to you, the bank, uh, where does it go afterward? Well, it, mortgages have been securitized for 40 years in the United States, and that's a really valuable thing. It's a private sector solution, motivated in part uh, and subsidized by the government, uh, perhaps too much. But the bigger question is, what do you do when you repackage all that stuff and you perform a kind of, of international banking alchemy so that you hide who owes what to whom, right. making it hugely problematic when all of a sudden people wake up and say, wait, how am I going to get paid? On what basis? What is this stuff made out of? And when you have that kind of moment, then you can have the entire financial system seize up, right? And I think there are, two, there are a couple of problems. So Dodd-Frank gets passed in order to answer some of these problems. I think some of the, some of the answers that Dodd-Frank provides uh, uh, are pretty good. The problem is, is that we still have these unbelievably large banks that fund themselves with a huge amount of debt. Uh, and I am not confident, as I sit here today, uh, as certainly not as a historian, we've never solved the problem of financial crisis, and I think that it's an illusion to suppose that we can. But even even the solutions that do make sense, like making banks fund themselves more with equity rather than debt, this is a this is a uh, speaking of libertarians. This is something libertarians have been pushing for a very long time. I think it is exactly correct. Um, it wasn't taken far enough. Uh, banks are still over-levered. And that is, that is a very big problem. Um, and, uh, and it's not something that we've really, we've really licked. We haven't had a chance to test it. I hope the next chance comes after we're all dead. Um, but in the event of a huge financial crisis, where all of a sudden people wake up and say, wait, who owes me what? And what is this stuff made out of? That the banks uh, right now, as they're structured, not really in a position where they're going to be able to handle that really well, especially if it happens all at once, as it did in 2008. Now, Uh, let me ask you, does the Fed have any responsibility uh, to uh, reject a request for more funds by the the federal government? If the federal government needs more money in circulation, does the Fed say, no, not such a good idea, or do they just take orders and they... they, they, uh, they sell a bond, you know, to the Treasury Department. Then the Treasury Department, um, you know, sells it to the banking system, and then the Treasury prints the money out. Of, of, I think that's about how it works, something like that. Um, well, it's, um, it's do they have a responsibility to say, no, you, 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 you guys are, you know, floating in money, and it's not going anywhere. Giving you more money is going to make exasperate the poor situation we're in now, or the stagnant situation we're in now. Yeah, so you're getting at, at what is a, a fundamental tension between fiscal policy and monetary policy. Now, interestingly, the Fed, this is the idea of Fed independence. This is the, if, if the concept means anything at all, it means this, that the Fed, not the Treasury, sets the amount of money in circulation, that they're in charge of that monetary policy. Um, so the Treasury doesn't say, hey, Fed, you've got to do this. The Treasury simply makes a bet and says, well, we're going, to run, uh, we're going to run deficits this year. And my bet is that some combination of private parties and the Federal Reserve are going to demand that debt. They're going to want to hold Treasury debt. And so far, that bet has been very good. 
Uh, and the reason is because every single investor uh, with a portfolio, a major investor, institutional investor with a portfolio, has a demand for what they call risk-free assets. Now, now are the debts of the United States really risk-free? Uh, not at all. You know, countries fall, empires fall. Uh, there could come a time where we might look like Greece or Argentina and we default on that debt, in which case those people who made that assumption about the treasury debt being risk-free uh, made the wrong assumption. But so far, the assumptions held up more or less. Uh, what the Fed is in the position of doing now is making its monetary policy in the shadow of that fiscal policy. You can't ignore it, right? It can't ignore what the 800-pound uh, gorilla of the federal government can do. What it can do is say, you know, what we're going to do is, uh, uh, is make this policy uh, and hope that the, the, the political branches, Congress and the president, uh, are able to make a fiscal policy uh, that makes sense. But if they're not, then we're, not, we're going to have to raise interest rates and suck the fun out of the room, uh, uh, because if not, then all that means is we're, we're just uh, uh, printing money into an inflationary space. Um, so again, the reason that hasn't happened in the last eight years, and so many people who've been critical of the Fed are surprised not to see more inflation, is they didn't re really understand the size of the hole that the 2008 crisis put in the economy. Right. If you saw the Fed acting like it's acting today in the 1980s or 90s, for example, then uh, you know we would we would look like uh, Hungary in the 1930s or something, uh, uh, or the Weimar Republic in the 1920s hyperactively uh, inflationary uh, environment. But that's because we didn't have a hole in the economy that was so breathtakingly large, uh, and not just the economy, but in the financial system. And so uh, right now the way it works is the Fed you know, creates its, this money, buys assets with the money it creates, and this money it creates is entirely left to its... We said it buys know. assets. What assets is it, is it buying? It's buying treasury bonds, this debt, and it's also, it was buying during that, the... During the treasury the, bond debt is not an asset. That's a, a serial asset. That's a fake asset. To the well, it's an asset that pays interest. So that's all you need to have uh, an asset, right? It's, it's no different from me who, buying who, a, a farm that I don't run. It's just paying interest. But who's uh, paying the interest? The, the government that's bankrupt? I mean, well, right, to but, me, that doesn't make, it, it doesn't make sense on a... On a not intellectual, on a basic level, it doesn't make any sense to me. Right, well, well this, is, this is how, the same way it works anytime anybody, individual or firm or government, borrows money. They borrow money that they're going to pay back. And the United States has been paying back its money. It but it, it only pays back the money because it prints more money. Uh, well, so, so that's, that's, uh, well, that's not true, right? So that, that's the entire idea of Fed independence, is that uh, while the Federal Reserve System is part of the government, the Board of Governors anyway, uh, uh, it is uh, it has separated the function of printing money from the borrowing function into two different places. And that separation is seen as the very thing that prevents us from being like Weimar Germany uh, in a hyperinflationary environment, or Zimbabwe, decided more recently. I, I didn't understand that. What prevents us from becoming because a Zimbabwe? Because they're not going to move in sync. If the, Fed, if the federal government, and here I mean the Treasury and the Congress, which passes the, the budget, just starts dramatically expanding the national debt, 
even further than uh, the economy could absorb. Then, and the, then the Fed says, yeah, okay, we'll buy all that up. We'll buy up all that debt, right? Uh, be, and again, the economy uh, uh, is, uh, there's, no, there's no giant hole in the economy uh, that, is, that is allowing this debt to cycle through. Then that's inflation. That's the very thing that you've been talking about that you've been fearing. What makes Fed independence important is the opportunity for someone like Janet Yellen to say to someone like Donald Trump, no, no, you've created this debt or, or Ben Bernanke to Barack Obama or Alan Greenspan to George W. Bush. You've created this fiscal mess, but we at the Fed are not going to, to participate in it. We're going to raise interest rates and make this even harder and put you back to the process of coming up with a more viable budgetary solution. Mm. That dance, if it happens, preserves the integrity of the current. I agree. One if thing, it doesn't, yeah. then we get into the situation of hyperinflation. Well, you know, uh, although we're not talking about apples and apples, it's sort of like apples and bananas, but, you know, Volcker, you know, increased the interest rate to 21%, I think it was sure. a high, you know, and today we struggle, we struggle to increase, and usually don't, struggle to, to increase the interest rate by one quarter of 1%, and, and usually end out on the lower end. And so the dichotomy there is just staggering. Now, I know there's probably many reasons for that, legitimate reasons for that, but it sort of makes you a little suspicious as to how at one time we can raise interest rates to 21% and survive, and today the fear of increasing interest rates by a quarter percent may cause some sort of catastrophic financial anomaly that, that will put us out of business altogether. Yeah, how, I mean, how do you answer uh, for that? Is, I, I like the way that you started. It's not an apples-to-apples comparison, but you're right to put a spotlight on how is 2017 – so dramatically different from 1979 to 1982, which is when, uh, which was the, the, the Volcker experiment with, with sending interest rates into the stratosphere. Um, so first of all, there are a couple of differences that are really important. Number one is that inflation was at double-digit levels before 1979. Right. Um, and it wasn't at all uh, at the beginning of 2008. And again, today inflation is at less than 2%, uh, which is a real problem for the Fed. So that's a big difference, is that the interest rates were that high but inflation was that high. And so the effort was trying to get in interest rates uh, to be uh, on a real basis, meaning you know, what, is, what are the interest rates after you subtract away inflation, uh, into a more positive territory. Um, and here we have, we have structurally a very similar phenomenon. Interest rates are lower than the rate of inflation, which means the real interest rates are below water. They're, they're below right. zero. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, so that's one big difference is that inflation was the problem here we wish we had that inflation. Because we don't have that inflation, we're, we're wondering about the fragility of the economy. Hmm. Second big pr difference there uh, is that we are coming in, in a situation where uh, our economic recovery from the 2007-2009 recession has been anemic. It's taken a very long time for us to get a full recovery, many, many years. Unemployment rates were above 10% uh, in the early stages of that recovery, and they've only been going down slowly but surely. Um, and so the idea of triggering in that kind of a fragile economic environment uh, another recession is something that the Fed is looking at and saying, how could we justify that? When Volcker went and sent 
percent interest rates through through the ceiling, it caused a huge recession. I don't know if you remember the recession of the early nineteen eighties. Oh yes, I, I certainly do. Yes. Yeah, and people were sending him. Construction workers were sending him two by fours from their construction sites saying, well, we're not going to use these. You might have a use for them. Uh, uh, car salesmen were sending keys to cars that they weren't able to sell because they're like, you have destroyed this, this economy. There were these big efforts to impeach Paul Volcker because of what he was about. And again, the problem he was facing is so fundamentally different. Indeed, it's 180 degrees from the problem right. that has been facing yeah. more recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but those kinds of those kinds of comparisons are, are exactly the right questions to be asking uh, about what the Fed's unique power and independence are, and also what are its limits. And I think that's that's the thing that motivated me uh, to write my book, uh, The Power and Independence of the Federal Reserve. It's not simply how breathtakingly powerful the Fed is but in some ways how very limited its toolkit is uh, in order to solve the world's economic problems. In fact, it can't do it. And the Fed, I think, is to blame in part for our belief that it can. The Volcker Greenspan Fed set themselves up as uh, this, uh, this temple of wisdom out of which flows all perfect economic policy. Ironic that uh, one of the leading libertarians of the, the second half of the 20th century, Alan Greenspan, would be the one to encapsulate that kind of vision. Well, of I know, but he, he was a turncoat. He was a turncoat, wasn't he? I mean, he, <laughs> I mean come on, let's be honest. Uh, well, I, 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 the, what, there are so many things that concern me, but when Yellen says that we have a, a, a 2% inflation target, uh, what crystal ball was she using, and why isn't a slight deflation actually better for the economy. That means things are less expensive. Your dollar is stronger. It can buy more items. And when you inflate the dollar, you buy less. You harm the economy. And then she goes on this rant about, well, it's only 1.6. Our target is 1.0. What is this 0.4%? How is this going to change the economy? It's, it's as if she has this crystal ball or this computer with knobs on it, and she's turning them, and it's going to correct everything. I, quite frankly, sometimes when she speaks, I think she's a lunatic. Yeah, I don't, I don't share that, not at all. I think Janet Yellen is one of the most uh, accomplished central bankers uh, uh, in the, uni- the United States. Well, that's seen. not saying much then about the other central bankers. I'll be honest with you. Let me disagree with you. Because when you, uh, if she uh, had a half a brain cell, uh, she said, hey, if anything, if, if inflation should be zero because we so don't want you to lose your purchasing power. Uh, is in the, in the mid-1990s when she had this debate, she said exactly that, that inflation in an ideal world should be zero. Here's why the attention is being paid to a target. Uh, it's not something that started in the United States. This is actually something started in New Zealand uh, of, of putting an inflation target. The 2% inflation target is uh, seen as justified because the threat of deflation is so much worse than inflation. Here's why. You're right. If you're thinking about it from a consumer perspective and you're on a fixed income, so you don't need to worry about labor markets or getting fired or anything like that, then deflation is fantastic, right? You get more bang for your buck. But, what, but the problem is, is that the vast majority of people do have to worry about where their money is going to come from. And deflation is the worst thing that could happen to a business owner because you've got to start firing people. And as you start firing people, those unemployed people can't get jobs other places because there's just not enough money coming in to the businesses. Well, so let, me stop you there. Let, me, let me stop you there. I'm a business owner, right? Deflation means that people can have – they have more money – 
with which to buy things, which is good for my business, not bad for my business. Inflation kills my business because people have less money, buy less, thus my customers produce less, I go out of business. So what you're assuming, though, is that wages and price levels are completely in sync. No, right. I'm, or not, they're not I'm not saying that, but, but we can't assume the we cannot assume the opposite the, 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 the opposite as well. Yeah, sure. So inflate, I'm not saying that inflation is something you should welcome as a business owner. But what happens with deflation? We have in every instance where we've seen deflation uh, in the Great Depression and other economies in Japan, uh, the consequence to the economy and to business owners is catastrophic. It doesn't function this way, where deflation starts to happen, all of a sudden everybody's like, well. We all agree I'm going to take these wage slashes uh, because they're completely in sync with the price slashes and everything's going well. Uh, that's not how it happens. Wages are stickier than this. And that creates a, a profound problem uh, when those wage adjustments happen because now less money is coming in to your business, but you still have to pay the same overhead right? until there's an adjustment. And when that happens, that's going to be death to you. Now, unless if you've got a really phenomenal business, and you've got a huge reserve, then maybe you can last it out until you get that adjustment down where it's making more sense. Um, but for most businesses, they're operating on the margin, uh, and that's not going to be uh, uh, the experience there. So the reason for the 2% inflation target, or, or to be so concerned when you're even uh, four-tenths of a percentage point off, is that we're actually uh, playing a game of uh, a blind man's bluff trying to find out what inflation actually is. We have what the measurements are, but those measurements are always going to be lagging right, on what really is happening in the world. And so the 2% inflation is trying to say, well, we know that the economy is growing. It's growing at roughly 2%. And so if we're keeping a monetary base uh, uh, at, at a stable growth that's about the same, this was Milton Friedman's idea, by the way. He wanted, he wanted inflation to be fixed. Uh, uh, by a computer, uh, uh, he, he, he thought would, it was 4%. That's a wacky idea, but go ahead. I mean, I, I don't subscribe to that whatsoever. I think the free, market, the free market determines the inflation, and if every business owner was, you know, did what they always do, and that's try to provide the best product at the best possible price uh, without all the government regulations that forces them to raise their prices to cover the cost of government regulations, we would have deflation, we would have more money in our pockets, and we'd be, have a higher productivity. But you, you can't take one and just take it out and say, see what happens when you just take this one ingredient out. You need yeah, to, get, I guess the you, you need to clean the whole system out. You know, it's um, like my uncle Lou, he, was, he used to belong to that big organization. It started with an M. I don't recall what it stood for. But, you know, when uh, they clean things out, they really clean things out. We need to do the same thing. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not so sure of that, uh, and and I think the reason is, if you if you took uh, Dr. Paul's suggestion and ended the Fed, and resorted to uh, private money creation and regulation entirely, um, that enthusiasm for the free market it, uh, it goes back to the question I was asking earlier. Um, it's not going to be the case in these market environments, including the ones that we're in. This is one of the things that makes me most concerned. With, with libertarians, uh, uh, too, I should add, about the concentration of uh, power in the banking sector at places like J.P. Morgan Chase. I, I agree that there's always that, there is that, that risk. And that, if right. you take the Fed out of the picture, yeah. then you're handing over the keys of the kingdom to exactly those actors. Well, and they're not going to be participating and saying, let the best man win. 
I, they're going to try and create all kinds of barriers to entry to other guys, smaller guys who are trying to engage in the same in the same business. Uh, and so, and this is indeed what we did see uh, in an era uh, of private market creation is exactly that sort of uh, of concentration. Um, I'm unfortunately going to have to run. This has been a wonderful hour that I've spent. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. Well, I, I, I have many concerns. You know, our, our debt to GDP now is about uh, uh, 105 or 106%. Not good. I think we're the fifth largest in, when it comes to debt to GDP ratio in the, in the, in the world. And we're only preceded by places like Greece and Cyprus and Italy and places like that. Um, uh, and and um, our deficits, uh, exporting deficits, you know, keep on going up. Uh, import uh, export deficits keep on going up. Um, we have lots of problems. Uh, I, I don't think going to be solved by the Federal Reserve, unfortunately. But let me give you the last thirty seconds to wrap things up. You've got to come back because we have to finish this conversation. <laughs> I hope you agree to come back. Oh, well, it's been it's been a delight to talk to you. I think that one thing that our 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 public discourse and I would certainly put your your excellent radio uh, uh, station in in that mix. One thing that our public discourse suffers from is that people of different ideological backgrounds often refuse to engage each other. Right. So it sounds like you and I don't don't agree on a lot. But I was delighted to be able to talk about this, and I was uh, I benefited from your insight uh, uh, on this, even where we disagree. And I hope that uh, that others. Uh, do exactly this thing, reach across whatever ideological difference might exist and say, well, we've got things to learn from each other, even though we, oh, uh, no. we see the I, And believe me, I learned a lot from you, and uh, a lot of the skepticism that you bring up regarding some of the very common notions of what is going on, I'm glad you brought that up because it makes me rethink some of those as well, and that's going to help me long term. So I appreciate, Peter, you being on the show, and I do look forward to seeing you again. It's been a real pleasure, Joe. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Folks, this is the end of today's program. We'd like to thank our sponsors for the financial support, and we'd like to thank you for listening in. You can further the cause of liberty by recommending this program to your friends. Let us hear from you. Our email address is comments at com. Remember, subscribe to our reminder service by going to our website and clicking on the libertytalkradio.com subscribe button. Also, like us on Facebook and download our app so you can listen to us on the on your iPhone or smartphone. Until next time, this is Joe Cristiano. Until next time, stay well. Stay tuned.